You are tuned into The Dr. Tina Show with Dr. Tina Moore. For more, visit drtina.com. On this episode of The Dr. Tina Show, I'm going to be breaking down a common question I get, which is, why do some people get sick from COVID-19? Some people get really, really sick, and others don't seem to show any symptoms at all. I am not an immunologist. I will come out and say that. However, I do have a decent understanding of immunology, and I have a decent understanding of viruses, and I have a decent understanding of how physiology works. And so I'm going to try to break this down for you as best as I can so that we can start to understand this in a more commonsensical way. The first thing I'd like to say is take notes because I'm going to go fast. (laughs) I want to make sure that this information is at a level that most humans can understand. I'm not talking to other doctors right now. I know that sometimes people want it to be at a higher level and we can do that somewhere else. But right now, I just really want the common folks to understand how viruses work why COVID is such a ninja amongst them, and basically what's going on in the general scheme of things. So we're going to step back and we're going to look at the flu, for instance, all right? Now, every virus is different. It has a different capsid. It has a different RNA sequence. It has a different binding proteins that binds it to the human cells or the host cells. And so they're all very different from one another. However, The influenza virus and the coronavirus are both single-stranded RNA viruses, pretty simplistic in terms of how they work. Coronaviruses have a huge genome, uh, so there's a lot that can go awry, I should say, for the host in the sense that the virus itself can mutate very readily and can recombine, as can the influenza virus. They both have a similar capsid. They're shaped a little differently. They're both aerosolized. And so they travel through aerosol. If you've really hung up on the droplet thing, let it go because that is not totally correct. And they, every season that they come out, you are going to have to be dealing with a new one. Now, viruses mutate and recombine. That's what they do. And these two in particular do so very readily. And the reason I'm mentioning the flu is not because I think this is like the flu or it is the flu. That's that's incorrect. I'm just trying to put it in terms of something that people are familiar with because when people think of the flu, they don't freak out. But when they think of coronavirus, they flip out and they lose all common sense. I'm trying to show you comparisons here so that you understand we're not dealing with some kind of alien from a different planet. Now, when viruses mutate and recombine, they get kinder and gentler. I've been saying this from the beginning. A lot of people have come out after me and talked about it as well. From the very beginning, I've been trying to express this, that they get kinder and gentler as they mutate. Coronaviruses don't do this as readily as influenza viruses. Influenza viruses tend to chill out. The reason being is they go in the body, they move through the body, and as they are manufactured inside the host's cellular machinery, our own cells, as they bud off, they take on... For, for lack of a better way to explain it, they, they don't take on human characteristics. They just start to chill out because parts of our immune system have processed them. And now they are more human friendly, if you will. And so influenza will chill out faster than coronavirus as well. The new variant, I, I don't know if I'm worried about it yet. It's more transmissible. It seems to be not showing a lot of symptomology in people who have it. And Conveniently, one of the concerns with it is myocarditis, but we'll just leave that for your imagination on on why that's in there. But what I will say is, if you look back on viruses and pandemics, 
you'll see that there was one at the end of the 1800s in Russia, and it was the Russian flu. There's some speculation that perhaps that wasn't a flu and influenza virus, that it was actually a coronavirus. And when it first hit humans, it was gnarly, just as this similarly to this one. Why is this one killing more people? Well, people are way more transmissible. I mean, right? Like the, the Russian flu, the 1918 flu, both of those were had to get around the world, but there weren't nearly the amount of people traveling around the world, right? And there weren't nearly the amount of people and people weren't nearly as sick. So let's stop comparing apples to oranges. Those were entirely different things. The reason I bring up the Russian flu is because if it was a coronavirus, it is speculated that it chilled out around the 1950s, 1960s, and it is now one of the four beta coronaviruses that circulate as the common cold. And so there are four coronaviruses that circulate as the common cold, if you didn't know that, and they're not deadly. We get them, sometimes we get them again. Coronaviruses do not impart as long of an immune response, it seems, as influenza viruses do. If your grandparents got the 1918 flu and a similar strain comes around and kills off all the young people, it may not kill the old people because the old people have some kind of memory response, memory immune system. We're going to talk about that more in a minute, the, the memory immune system. But for now, just knowing that coronaviruses don't chill as readily. So am I worried about the new variant? I don't know. I don't know if I'm more worried about, or if I was worried about Delta, the transmissibility of it. Yeah. You know, if it's more, that's, of course it's going to be, that's viruses don't want to kill their host. You guys, they want to jump from host to host to host and they want to spread. And so it does not behoove them to kill off their host quickly. It behooves them to spread. And so they want to become more transmissible, but not necessarily more deadly. So we don't know. And so for people who are saying, you know, inequivocally, this, this Delta and this new variant are going to be less deadly. I don't honestly know if we can say that, but we don't have a lot to go on. So I'm not going to talk much on that. People are asking me a lot of questions about, am I concerned? I just think we're going to keep seeing variants and the news is going to keep sensationalizing it and governments are going to keep using it to invoke fear and uh, allow emergency mandates so that tyrannical governors can continue to remain as overlords. You know, I mean, we're just going to keep seeing more of the same. And so long as the public continues to fear it, I mean, what are, you, what are we going to do if it is, right? <laughs> like, that's really my thing. It's like, what are we going to do if this was man-made in the first place and it came out of lab? Who cares, right? It's out. You've heard me say that before. And re who really cares if this is more deadly? Like, what do you, you can't hide from it, right? We cannot hide from these. These are going to get everywhere in short time and they're going to be all over the world and... This, I personally feel that the same people who were going to die in the first place are still going to die, no matter what kind of man-made barriers or prophylactics we put into place. I think those who are most susceptible are going to remain most susceptible, period. And I'm so sorry if that sounds morbid, and I do not mean it to sound lacking in emotion or lacking in feelings or lacking in compassion, but it just is what it is. So, and I'm going to explain a little bit why people's immune systems respond differently. And maybe this will help shed some light on why I just said what I said. But I really think that we're seeing so many breakthrough cases and severe cases, even in double vaccinated, even in triple vaccinated. If you look at what's going on around the world, you're not hearing about it because when it doesn't fit the narrative, it doesn't get any news play. But when it does fit the narrative, it gets all the news play, right? So right now in India, we're not seeing anything because they're, they've, they've invoked ivermectin. So we're not seeing the deaths and the massive death toll we saw, which was 
horrifying from people who were there witnessing it. I've heard from a few now, and it sounded like it was absolutely awful. Um, we're not seeing, you know, Florida's winning. <laughs> and who knows if it's because they opened up. I think that's a huge part of it. Um, no mass mandates. They're allowing the virus to circulate. It's getting around. More people are getting natural immunity. And they are also using monoclonal antibodies. I don't have a good stance on monoclonal yet. I do think, I'll just say this because I'm going to do a, a upcoming episode on it. Here's the thing. People, I posted about it on Instagram and it got a lot of response. And what I'll say is this, and I was explaining this to my fiance the other night. He didn't want to get them. I, I didn't need them. He didn't want to get them. And I thought he should have gotten them and he didn't want them. And that's fair. We, you know, we made a pact at the beginning of being sick that we would honor each other's wishes. My wish was under no circumstance are you to take me to a hospital whatsoever. And he didn't want monoclonal. So I respected that. Is are are they government made? Are they government distributed? You know, all these all these concerns and they're valid concerns, right? Like people don't trust what's going on right now. And I don't entirely blame them always. I don't trust some of what's going on. I will say this, taking a prophylactic to potentially have a lessening, and I'm talking about the vaccine. This is my stance. This is in no way, shape, or form medical advice, and it is not to be construed as such. Of course, always talk to your practitioner. But in my head, I have a pre-existing condition that is a known side effect of this vaccine, and it's a pretty gnarly one. So I would like to not potentially die. So I do not believe I'm a safe candidate for the vaccine. To take a vaccine that hasn't been shown to stop transmission at all, and in fact, just go to the CDC and look up vaccine transmission, COVID vaccine transmission CDC, and up will pop the first page, and it's from the CDC, and they actually go through and they have revamped their stance, and it's very clear this does not stop transmission whatsoever. The wording you're going to hear out there from people is, do your part um, and they're, they're starting to change it. If you go to the World Health Organization's Instagram, she just did, a, this gal, just doctor just did a few videos and she was like, do your part, meaning social, it was about Omicron, you know, social distance, mask up, wash hands and get vaccinated. The and get vaccinated part is just so you don't get super sick. But we're seeing super sick people who've been vaccinated. So I don't know where all of that stands. The vaccine is leaky and it does not stop transmission. And we've known this since day one. So I've been saying this since day one. Pfizer's been saying this and Moderna's been saying this from day one. All their studies, none of their studies showed anything except that it decreased hospitalization in the end user. It didn't even decrease death. It just decreased hospitalization in the end user. It did not stop transmission. I'm so tired of hearing this narrative about do your part, do the right thing, do what's good for public health. It's coming out of my own associations. They're saying, you know, do the, and I'm like, are you kidding me? It doesn't stop transmission. Has anyone read the studies? <laughs> Has anyone looking at this? So if you're, if you're me and you don't want the vaccine, maybe you don't trust it, maybe you have pre-existing conditions, maybe you trust your immune system, maybe there's a variety of reasons and none of them are anyone's business, but yours, your own, that's your medical autonomy. It's your God-given right. And it's your right as a U.S. citizen for sure. If you don't want the vaccine because you're going to take your chances with the virus, okay, say you do want the vaccine because you're scared of dying from the virus. And the vaccine has been, it, it indeed has been shown to decrease hospitalizations and maybe even deaths, right, at this point now. So potentially it could keep you from dying or having a severe case. Okay, great. That's cool. That's also your choice. I do not begrudge anyone for that at all. So you've, we've got that going. 
And maybe you take it even though you don't entirely trust it or you're a little bit scared or a little bit hesitant. That's okay. You take it and you you do fine. Okay, great. Now there's, or you don't do fine, right? Who knows? And then there's this other treatment called monoclonal antibodies. And you take that because you are on day five or six of being sick and you're really, really, really sick. And you're so sick, you think you're going to die. Or you're on the edge of death. Or you're heading towards the sickest you've ever been and you're scared. And you take something that maybe you don't entirely trust and you don't entirely know what's all in it. We don't have all the long-term studies on that either. It's a different decision-making process. Do you see the difference? One is you are prophylactically taking something in the hopes of not contracting a virus. And if you do contract a virus, you'll hopefully not have as bad of a time. Okay, that's fine. And then this is also fine. If you're on death's door or you're sick as you've ever been and you can't breathe and things are scary, because this was a pretty gnarly virus. (laughs) I'm not going to lie. I mean, I didn't think I was going to die at any point, but I was a little bit concerned about my fiance for a hot second. And that was why I was encouraging him to get the monoclonal you know, you've heard the person's experiencing severe weight loss, they're, they're starting to get apathetic, they're starting to have pneumonia set in, then you maybe you take something, it's like six and one half dozen of the other, right? It's just two entirely different circumstances. So whatever choice you guys want to make on that is totally up to you. But I am certainly not going to tell I'm a doctor, and it's prudent of me to give you information, I'm not supposed to make the decision for you, you guys are not my patients. And so even with my patients, I just give them all the information and I tell them to make a decision. It's still up to the individual, right? That's called, that's what a PAR-Q is. You explain the procedure, you explain the alternatives, you explain the risks, and you explain, and then you say, ask if they have any questions and you answer the questions as best you can. That's it. That's what you're supposed to do legally. So I'm just here to give you this information. And I got a lot of hate actually on that monoclonal antibody post, which was weird, but people were saying like, we don't trust it. And it's, it's, this is not black and white, you guys. You today might say, I don't trust anything the government puts out. I don't trust any of this. I'm not letting any of it in my body. Okay, fine. Good for you. That's fine. I totally respect that. But what if you you are, you do contract COVID and you're on death's door and there's an opportunity for you to live? It might have some weird stuff in it. We don't know the long-term effects. We might have some concerns about autoimmunity and cancer down the road. We don't know if it's been, if there's any, you know, anything sketchy in there we should worry about. We don't have any long-term studies, but... It might save your ass, right? And it's too late to take the vaccine at that point. So I just want to leave options open for people. So I'm just trying to give information. Anyway, all right, back to the viruses. So why does this virus make some people so sick and others not? It was interesting to experience it. And I think I can talk to this with a little more authority now that I have experienced it because I was taking really good notes as I was going through it. And I was also, I watched my fiance go through it Um, it was weird how it hit. It either hit him originally on my day six or it hit him on, re-hit him on his day 10. We can't tell, but to watch him go through that whole experience as well, when I was actually had my brain working to some degree, gave me a lot of insight. So the first part of your immune system is called your innate immune system. And I've talked about this before. And the way I think of it, and this is really a gross description, um, meaning big overview description, not gross, grody, just big overview, kind of basic. Um, But again, I'm just doing this for people who are like normal people, not doctors. You have your macrophages and you have your uh, white blood cells and you have your first line of defense. And I think of them kind of like the 
in the military, it would be like the Marines. They kind of go in and hit it with everything they've got. They've got sea and air and land strikes, and there's going to be some fallout, right? Some innocent people, bystanders, are potentially going to get killed. Um, this is just kind of a seek and destroy mission, and it's 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 larger scale, and it's not real orchestrated. It's not real specific. That is the first part of your immune system. This virus, this COVID-19, SARS-CoV-2, I'm sorry, COVID-19 is the syndrome you get. The SARS-CoV-2 virus is pretty stealth and it has a great capacity to evade the first part of your immune system. And in fact, it infects your macrophages, which are, this is problematic and I'll share more about this in a bit, but it actually infects your white blood cells and it knocks down or offline, I should say, your natural killer cells, which are kind of like stealth ninjas themselves. And they they come in and just eradicate and poof, like they basically inject the virus and it explodes kind of thing. Think of it that way. And then you've got interferon, which is a chemical that's released by different immune cells. And they signal the orchestration of the immune system. I'm sorry, it, this molecule signals the orchestration of your immune system, and it calls upon your second phase of your immune system, your adaptive immune system, which is way more specific. This is where your antibodies come into play. This is more like the Navy SEALs. And so we want natural killer cells working. We want interferon working. We want macrophages working when a virus enters our system. Guess whose macrophages, interferon, and natural killer cells work? Awesome. Kids. That's why kids aren't getting too sick from this because it's literally hitting them and they're either processing it fast or they're simply eradicating it before they even have time to mount an immune response. Like it's just in and gone. It's in, it's identified, it's gone. And unfortunately, as adults age, as they get sicker, as they get more malnourished, as they get more obese, these systems start to fail them pretty majorly in some cases. And so the virus is getting in the front door. It's actually creating an autoantibody to to the interferon. So it's creating an immune response from your own body directly to take out the interferon. It's essentially like opening the gates of the castle and dropping the drawbridge and letting all the invaders in without even any checkpoints. That's basically what's happening with COVID. And in the process, it's infecting your macrophages and causing commotion in a way that starts to call in other immune cells into your lungs and into some of the area, the organ systems we're seeing get hit pretty hard. Uh, Again, this is just kind of like the junior high, high school version I'm trying to explain, but there's an a direct there's a direct infection of subpopulations of immune cells and this is only possible if they express certain virus target receptors which many do the SARS-CoV-2 infections infect the macrophages and this may be a key gate step in disease progression for some patients this this really can cause a lot of problems for people This episode of the Dr. Tina show is brought to you by my personal line of products that you can find inside my online store We can all use a bit more resilience right now, so I bottled it. Resilience is an optimal adrenal support to promote energy and stamina. Resilience features a comprehensive blend of nutrients and botanical extracts targeted to support the body's responses to stress. It's designed to promote adrenal physiological functions by supporting the adaptogenic response to promote optimal energy production, stamina, and the management of everyday stressors. Adrenal glandular tissue sourced from Argentinian bovine to safeguard purity rounds out the ingredient profile. 
While I can't make any specific health claims, tell you how to dose it, or make individual health recommendations, I can tell you how they work. As always, check with your provider before beginning any supplement regimen. Listeners of The Dr. Tina Show can enjoy 10% off Resilience right now by using the code RESILIENCE10 over inside my store at store.drtina.com. That's D-R-T-Y-N-A. Again, head to store.drtina.com and use code RESILIENCE10 for 10% off. All right. The second part of your immune system is your T cells, your B cells. And your B cells make antibodies. And hopefully this comes online when that signal is sent and the immune system starts learning about the invader. First, the the invader has to get identified. And I just explained to you how it's bypassing that. So by the time it gets identified, oftentimes viral titers are high. And there's a lot of reasons why viral titers will go high. One is your immune system doesn't see it. Two is you're malnourished. Three is you're obese. Four is you're elderly. Five is you're inflamed, right? Which is, we're describing a lot of the people we're seeing most frequently dying of this virus. And the T cells, think of the T cells. They have a a bunch of different capacities, but they're like super stealth uh, Navy SEALs. The B cells are pumping out antibodies. When people say, oh, I have antibodies or I don't have antibodies, that doesn't necessarily mean everything. Um, Antibodies come on at different phases and then they wane at different points in time post-infection. And then you've got some T cells that are called memory T cells, and those can hang on for a long time in your body, I and mean, years and years and years and years. And they remind the B cells when that virus makes, or a version of that virus makes its way into your body again, your T cells go, hey, we recognize this, your memory T cells, hey, we recognize this, and we got to get the B cells activated to pump out some antibodies and let's get this handled fast. So it doesn't have to go through that whole like seek and destroy phase one nightmare as much because the memory B cells are there. But I will say these cells, well, I just posted an article on my Instagram. They just found an obese patient and this was to the virus and to the vaccine. So anything I tell you about your immune system here or spike proteins could apply potentially to the vaccine. And I'll try to differentiate where I do know, where I do have information, but I don't have all the information. I don't, I don't know all the things there are to know, and we don't have all the info yet in general, but obesity can actually, we need neutralizing antibodies. And I remember early on before the vaccine got released or right when it got released, I saw an interview with one of the Pfizer scientists and she showed studies, slides of neutralizing antibodies with the vaccine in monkeys. And they were like, we have neutralizing antibodies let's go. Like, let's, let's do this. Let's, let's, we got what we needed. Cause that's really what you want is you want an antibody that binds the virus and just neutralizes it. And that's it. And those take a minute to come online when the virus has been in your body It can take a few days. And so with obesity, they don't make any neutralizing antibodies, unfortunately, or they make a very low count. And in fact, not only that, but they make autoantibodies against their own tissues. Like, in from exposure to the virus, in response to the virus, they're not only not making the right kind of antibodies, but they're making antibodies that attack their own tissue. So it's an inducing an autoimmune state. So people who are already autoimmune are showing in studies having a harder time with this. I think that's probably why I I had a hard time. It wasn't the worst time ever, but it was, and it wasn't worse than I thought it would be, but I kind of expected it to be a bit rough. And I talked about this in my last episode. You can go back and listen to all about my COVID experience. But there's just some reasons why we're not seeing any of the immune system work right. And I and it's called senescence. It's immune system senescence. Your immune system basically goes to sleep. There's quiescence where your immune system 
your stem cells stop working. And I'll talk a little bit about this now. So we have age. So the older we get, the worse that first line innate immune system works, the worse our interferon signaling is, the worse our natural killer cells work, the worse our T cells and B cells work, the worse our memory T cells. If we're inflamed, especially if there's adiposity and low nutritional status, right? Like these are not all isolated events. They kind of go together. A lot of obese people actually are very malnourished. So it's not about size of the person. It's about nutritional status. And I know there's a lot of reasons for this. And I always, always acknowledge the fact that there are food deserts and there are, uh, there's, there's financial inequality, there's racial inequality. I understand this. That doesn't make this objective data different. These are still facts that I feel is are important to share, regardless of if it, I mean, this is the world, this is reality, this is where we're at. And we haven't been able to talk about it for two years. I haven't been able to without someone screaming, you're a racist at me, but it, it doesn't change the fact that this is still objective, factual data that I believe the public should know about. So age, nutritional status, obesity, inflammation, all of those things will put your immune system into a more senescent or a sleep pattern. That's why young people, I, I, I mean, I've seen the studies and I firmly believe this, the chances of a kid dying of COVID are like slim and none. And I'm going to explain some reasons why they might though. We're going to get to that in a minute. This virus also induces an, an autoantibody response in people. It's, it's kind of wicked that way. And a lot of viruses can do this. I've experienced it personally. And very commonly patients will come in I'll diagnose an autoimmune condition and all of the symptoms started after some kind of viral infection. So this isn't new. This isn't like isolated just to COVID or to SARS-CoV. This is, this is like something we know about viruses. It's pretty common to have it hit a system and then that system go into an autoimmune induction. So I think that's happening in real time during the course of the illness. And I'm thinking that's part of the reason why when we hit day eight to 10 of the viral infection, that's the in beginning of the inflammatory phase. And so you're not as worried about viral titers at that point as you are the actual individual's immune system doing what it's doing in response to the viral invader. The viral titers may still be elevated if the immune system hasn't cleared it out yet. But generally speaking, now in my head, I'm thinking clinically, okay, we're, we're going into an immune phase. I need to treat this patient as if they are autoimmune or and or just very inflamed because that's when the cytokine storm happens and people when they go into meltdown this virus makes you very apathetic and it takes your brain out pretty fast as far as ability to think and the brain fog and headache is real <laughs> and if if we were to look at this in terms of animal behaviorism if you were to take a coyote for instance i watch them on my land you know and i watch the deers and if you were to take one of them and I mean, by day two or three, my headache was so horrific and my ability to cognitively make decisions was so bad. And then the apathy that comes with that was tremendous. I had to fight it. My fiance kind of gave into it more and I had to fight him to get him moving. But that's the reason we lay down and don't want to do anything. That would really mess up a, an animal, right? In the wild and severely increase the potential of it not making it, not just from the virus, but like getting eaten by other predators, et cetera. And so- I think that's one of the reasons this virus is so wicked. It takes out your ability to make decisions so people are sick. And if there's not someone there to, who is making good decisions, I could see how it could you know, kind of pith your brain, if you will, and it, it messes you up. And so you're not making great decisions on how to get yourself out of the hole. So that's a, that's a problem. Um, when that 
immune system comes online, that phase two comes online, if you will. And again, this is another kind of gross description, but I say this in that this is where the cytokine storm can explode on people and really, for lack of a better term, melt them. It melts their tissues down. It. I said this when, on that video I made that went viral in the beginning of this whole pandemic. This is how it works. It's like virus enters body, virus evades the you know, the gatekeepers, virus gets through the gate, virus starts replicating inside the castle. No one even knows it's there. All of a sudden the body wakes up and realizes it's there. Some of the specialty fighters get noticed that like, hey, something's gone wrong in the castle. Things are weird. Things are disappearing. People are mysteriously dying. The sharpshooters come in and all of a sudden there's a lot of virus in there and right. It just like, they just start dropping bombs. And the immune system goes wackadoo, and that's the dreaded cytokine storm that we don't, we do not want. So that's part of it. All right, so I'm going to talk a bit about viral binding. The virus binds your ACE2 receptors. ACE2 receptors are throughout your body, and they are involved in the renin-angiotensin system. And they are, think of them as protective. ACE2 receptors are protective, but they increase in response to inflammation. So if someone's walking around in a chronically inflamed state, which I would say most Americans are due to their, uh, their diets and their lack of exercise and toxicity levels, et cetera, then we've got a lot of ACE2 receptors hanging out being protective, but they also bind the virus so it gives the virus a lot of opportunities to bind. And remember, viral titer matters. Viral load, viral titer, same thing. Viral titers matter. Uh, ACE2 receptors are also increased in just naturally in the lungs and in the cardiovascular system and in some of the organ systems we're seeing go into failure quickly. They are also very prevalent on adipose cells, which are fat cells. And so if you have a lot of adipose cells, you're going to have more ACE2 receptors and that's going to mean more potential for viral binding. And we do know, and you guys can listen to some of my old podcasts, I'll just say this quickly, we know this for influenza to be true, and we are now seeing the studies come out in COVID patients as well. Um, obesity does some pretty gnarly things. I've already shared some of what it does to your immune system. I'm going to share some more, but obesity does some pretty bad things for the COVID patient and for lots of different reasons. And one of them is that your fat cells are basically cytokine factories, especially if it's visceral fat, the kind of fat that lives underneath the belly muscle around the organs that when you have a big gut, that means you have a lot of visceral fat for the most part. And that is the kind of fat that's quite dangerous and quite pro-inflammatory. It's like a little cytokine factory. And so people who have a lot of visceral fat are going to have a much higher potential for a cytokine storm. And they're going to have less potential for having a good well-orchestrated immune response that's healthy and not overdone. That's adequate and not overdone, right? We want it to be adequate, but not overdone. The other important thing is that adipose cells tend to move towards an, over time, eventually they become more inflammatory, even if it's subcutaneous fat. And it's, it's just a matter of, in my opinion, it's a matter, not a matter of if, it's a matter of when. So if you were to track a young person with a lot of subcutaneous fat and they, they might metabolically look very sound on labs and be very healthy, but that fat will eventually become pro-inflammatory as they age and they get more insulin resistant because insulin resistance is just part of the game of getting older, right? Inflammation and insulin resistance and, and metabolic dysfunction is just part of getting older unless you actively fight it. 
it's just part of the game, par, par for the course, if you will. Your T cells, remember the memory T cells I told you about? Well, there's killer T cells. Those are the ones that like, they're kind of like natural killer cells. Um, there's all kinds of different kinds of T cells and we need them and we need them balanced and we need them not pissed off. <laughs> we need them behaving. Trust me, this is where autoimmune disease and all other kinds of things come in. Your adipose cells act as little T cells uh, uh, depots. So your immune system develops in your thymus, well, your thymus kicks off and then in your bone marrow, and then it will move and sit and live in your fat cells. And if the fat cells inflamed, the T cells get pissed off and more of them convert to killer T cells and start really creating that nightmare that I talked about of inflammation when they decide to go. It's not orchestrated well. We don't have a ton of information on this, but from what I've read, it's basically like a, a cell gone rogue and it's angry and it starts killing much more indiscriminately. And then your memory T cells that live in there don't really do anything. They become senescent and they don't remember, they don't do their job. So if COVID comes back around and remember, there's no neutralizing or low neutralizing antibodies made in the obese patient. So we're (laughs) not a good place to be long-term because if you get it, you survive it, you get through it, even if you're vaccinated your opportunities to fight it off at a later date are going to be lessened if your immune system isn't remembering things. And then, um, well, that's enough with that. That, That's really the basis of it. I just want you to understand how those things work. If that interferon response is busted, remember the interferon, there's autoantibodies generated to interferon and there's more autoantibodies generated if you're in the obese state. And so you're basically shooting yourself in the foot, potentially, if you walk into this low nutritional status, obesity, age, those have all been shown to actually, this is the bad news, they actually, when the virus goes through bodies in those states, out comes a more virulent strain. And so those are actually the bodies responsible for more, for the variants, for more potential for mutations to occur and variants. And so, and I'm not trying to blame anyone. That's why I'm trying to choose my words very carefully here, but we are dealing with a society that is generally malnourished. It's generally carrying around extra adiposity. I mean, more Americans are obese than not. And age is definitely an issue here too, right? As people age. And so they are creating more virulent strains that go through their body. And that nutritional status piece, I think we all can do something about. I know it's harder for the elderly because they start to have dentition problems and they're not chewing as well and they're not digesting as well. And so that can be problematic. But doing everything we can to eat nutritionally dense foods really matters because those patients also have been shown to carry more viral, higher viral titers for longer periods of time and spread more. So they're essentially potentially super spreader bodies and they're creating more virulent strains. And this isn't every single person. I want to make this really clear. This isn't black or white. When people say, well, my husband is, you know, majorly overweight and he's diabetic and he's on all these medications and he didn't have a hard time at all. And I got my, you know, butt handed to me and I'm super healthy and fit. Yeah, not everyone's the same. And so that's why I'm trying to give you guys this information. The whole point of this is that none of this is black or white. There's shades of gray. That dude might be on some medications that actually gave him an upper hand. That's a potential. There's a lot of medications that we're not talking about way beyond the ivermectin hydroxychloroquine story that actually decrease viral titers and that work in sometimes an anti-inflammatory, an antiviral, or an anti-immune way. 
people who are on immune suppressants, for instance, for like Humira and other drugs like that may not actually get hit as hard because as you're hearing from me, it's not the virus that kills people, it's their immune response to it. And so those people aren't even having an immune response because they're taking immune inhibiting drugs, right? And so there's just a lot of variations here. So I don't want you to look at this and be like, this doesn't make any sense. So we're going to jump back to the flu really quick. If you were to walk into a house for Thanksgiving and everybody's feeling great and Uncle Ron has a little bit of a headache, but everyone everyone's feeling great. He's fine. He's up and at him. No, no big deal. All of a sudden, two days later, Uncle Ron calls and says, I just tested positive with COVID. I'm sick as a dog. And boom, a couple other people get sick over the next subsequent days. And then some people don't get sick. That is an example of pre-symptomatic spread or erroneously, we could call it asymptomatic spread because Uncle Ron had a headache. So he was pre-symptomatic. So he did spread it. His viral titers were hard enough, he are high enough that he was spewing them out in his aerosol in the house and he infected some other people and they too came down with it. There were other people who were exposed to the virus who didn't get sick at all. And there are others who got exposed to the virus and their immune system maybe gave them a tiny little version of something and they got over it and they didn't even notice. Maybe they just had a headache for a few days. That's normal, right? That's how viruses work. Coronavirus is the same way. (laughs) So next time you're wondering like, well, why this and why that and testing and testing, please know that Early on in this pandemic, before the tests were widely available, we were allowed to diagnose a patient positive just on symptom picture alone. And for every single patient with the flu I've ever diagnosed, and if you ask anyone in the hospital, the chances of getting a flu, when have you ever had a a nasal swab stuck up your nose to test for flu? I've had it done once and I was on death's door and I should have been going to the hospital. But we don't test for the flu either. So influenza diagnoses have always been made, for the most part, predominantly on symptom picture, symptomology. And so when people say, how do you know if it was COVID? Like I had COVID. Well, I did have a rapid home test and there are some false negatives and false positives with that. And there are definitely some issues with PCR testing, but the symptomology, the clinical symptom picture was so pathognomonic for COVID that I am sure it was COVID. And I had a, a positive rapid antigen test and my fiance had a positive rapid antigen test and he had a pathognomonic, like you lose your ta- sense of smell, your taste gets off, the headache, the fever, right? We were obviously fighting something and it didn't feel like influenza. It felt very, very different. So And he got a different case of it than I did for different reasons. Now, how you go into it matters, how you enter into this, how you enter into any virus will dictate how you process and proceed through the virus and how you do after. And so it was very important to me that we didn't deal with a lot of long haulers. I wanted us to come out of this and I wanted us to have good health coming out of it as fast as humanly possible, right? And so that going back to the interferon response, it's important that we have that. And that's where we want you to eat well. We, you know, I've been promoting strength training, eating well, uh, getting your heat shock proteins going with either sauna or a hot bath, going for walks, getting adequate sunshine, having your vitamin D status elevated high enough. Over 50 is what the studies are showing to be protective. Um, you know, having nutritional density in the form of supplementation, adequate vitamin zinc will help you when the virus does get in the gate, it's not going to be allowed to replicate as well. Vitamin C helps you both of those nutrients help you with collagen synthesis. And so as your collagen as these macrophages are being infected, and your tissues are being destroyed by the immune response, we really want to have 
backups there so that we can have not only an antiviral effect, but uh, an immune supportive effect. And this isn't treatment prevention or cure COVID. This is mitigating the response in the body. We want to have adequate collagen production on hand. And so it's really important that we have collagen in our diet. We cannot produce collagen unless we eat collagen. Collagen comes from animals, animal protein, animal parts. Um, it's important that we, we can supplement with collagen, but that's animal sourced vitamin C, zinc, some of those nutrients, vitamin D, again, we've seen in studies, vitamin D has a wonder, it's a hormone, first of all, it's not a vitamin, and it has an important role to play in your immune system and your inflammatory response. And so we do not want a body walking into COVID that is pro-inflamed and is going to get more inflamed. Because when the immune system finally does see the invader and wakes up, it's pissed off. And that's where the cytokine storm comes, like I said. All righty. So hormones matter. Interestingly, you need enough testosterone in your system to be um, to help you recover when you're under assault and to heal. But interestingly, this virus really does seem to double down on men with high androgens. And so high testosterone going into this can actually lead to some of that endothelial dysfunction and some of the blood clots and cardiovascular issues we're seeing. And so this virus takes out the warriors which is very unfortunate. It has a potential implication on men over women because of that androgen piece. Men who are your typical middle-aged dude, especially in the United States, tends to have kind of a doughy dad bod. If you were to test their labs, they would be rocking some low-grade uh, metabolic syndrome generally. They've got some elevated homocysteine. I've done thousands of labs on these guys. They'll have some elevated homocysteine. They'll have some blood sugar dysregulation, like I mentioned, some metabolic syndrome. They'll have a waist circumference that's too high. And they're just kind of sitting on the edge, but it's not really bad enough to be noticeable. They just don't really like how they look naked. And their testosterone is usually pretty much in the toilet if, and their estrogens will be elevated. And if you start giving these guys testosterone therapy and they don't change anything, like they don't start strength training, they don't start intermittent fasting, they don't start going on a high protein diet and really changing and getting their sleep dialed in, they will actually have that visceral fat. It also secretes an enzyme called aromatase, which turns your testosterone into estrogen. So you're giving the guy testosterone therapy or he's on, this is very common Guy goes to middle-aged guy, goes to doctor, he doesn't feel good. The doctor gives him testosterone to inject or cream to put on. He starts feeling a little bit better and then he bonks. It's because that aromatase is kicking in and he is now turning it all into estrogens. Estrogens can actually make you inflamed when they're in a man's body. It's not good. High estrogens. And so you can imagine why dudes with, even if they have adequate or elevated testosterone naturally or exogenously from injections, uh, if, it, if they're leading an unhealthy lifestyle and they're still drinking estrogen tincture beers and they're still, you know, rocking the dad bod and not lifting weights and not taking care of themselves and their sleep's all crazy, then you can see how they're really sitting in a pro-inflammatory state. And that is a bad place to be with COVID. All right. So sleep matters a ton. And I've talked about this before, but if you if your sleep's jacked for even two nights, you can go into a, an insulin resistant state. So you're basically putting yourself in a metabolic syndrome state just from having your sleep disrupted. My sleep was disrupted pretty heavily days prior to coming down with COVID symptoms. So I think that had something to do with it, as was my fiance's. He Well, his sleep wasn't messed up, but he was exhausted because he worked for 40 some days in a row. Um, gut health matters 
very much. And that's a whole other topic I will dive into. But if your gut is inflamed and you are protein deficient, there are studies showing that you will have a harder time with COVID. Your microbiome really, really matters here and your protein status matters. And low protein diets will actually start to cause a lot of issues in the gut. It's something no one talks about. People talk about healing the gut with herbs and nutrients and probiotics, but no one ever talks about how you actually need adequate protein. If you look at third world countries, they have terrible gut health because they are protein starved and countries where their food, their food subsidized as grains. That's all they get is grains. And it tears it like in some parts of Africa where you see the little, the, the sad, sad pictures of little kids with a big distended bellies. That's that protein deficiency situation happening. And, um, that's just a bad place to be. And you also need adequate human growth hormone to heal, especially heal your gut lining as we hit our 20s and 30s, especially if we're not active and working out our human growth and our sleep is messed up. That's a huge one. Our human growth hormone levels will start to wane. And so sleep is really critical, as are all the things I always double down on. Metabolic health and insulin resistance matter a ton. I've done a whole podcast episode on that you can go back and listen to. And then there's this concept of autoimmune disease, which I mentioned. The virus is inducing an autoantibody state. And so You've got a person actually turning around and attacking their own tissues. And these might be the same tissues that are being that have been infected by the virus and have had macrophage infiltration and blah, blah, blah. So you see how that could be a real hot mess there. And people can come out of this with autoimmune disease induced. That might be being uh, called long hauler syndrome. It might have just been activation of a low-grade autoimmune disease that they were rocking. And whenever an autoimmune disease kicks on, you've got to have, it's like a triangle, right? One side is your genetics. One side is your environmental upbringing. So all the foods and you've ever eaten, all the traumas you've ever had, all the relationships, everything. And then the last tier would be a, a an actual traumatic onset. And that can be a car accident. It can be a divorce. It can be a death in the family. But most often I found clinically it's a virus. So somebody will have a viral infection and they've never been the same since. And then I would see them come in for musculoskeletal pain, which can also be autoimmune. So there they are sitting there saying, I've never been the same since I had this flu. And that is to me a signal that they probably had some kind of autoantibody response and an autoimmune disease is has started and is either you know on low, low broil or it's really burning. And then it's my job to figure out how to get them feeling better, right? And so I think that's a big one. And I think it's being misconstrued as long haulers, but really it's just induction of autoimmune disease, which is totally not uncommon and happens all the time with all the other viruses. But right now it's getting a lot of play because again, the mainstream media wants to keep you scared, scared, scared. And so then there's this concept of ADE. And I'll, I'll try to wrap this up and make this not too arduous. ADE is antibody dependent enhancement. You may have heard that term. I've used it before there is a concern with these vaccines that there is going to be some ADE happening. And I think we're already seeing that happen in some places. I don't want to get into that right now. Uh, I think this winter will be very eye-opening for us. But you can have ADE to the virus itself. And so ADE is an immune complex of a virus and a non-neutralizing or cross-reactive antibodies that binds to receptor molecules. It's a well-known cascade of events whereby viruses may infect susceptible cells via an interaction between the virions complex with antibodies or complement components and respectively um, leading to the application of their replication. So it's like letting, 
it's the best way I can describe it, how I've described it to my daughter is the antibodies that are there aren't doing the job they're supposed to, to neutralize the virus. And they actually let the virus in the cell because they're being missed. The, the antibodies that are complexing with the virus aren't doing the right job. And I think that's what we're going to see some with the vaccine is a concern. Anyway, I, I, we don't know. We'll, we'll have to wait and see. They'll never tell us that's what's happening. But hopefully if we dig hard enough, somebody will do some studies. So there's this cross-reactivity of antibodies against the spike protein of SARS-CoV-1 and 2. It's common. And there's some preliminary data claiming that they seem to be rarely cross-neutralizing. And so what does this mean? It just means that you may have had a coronavirus in the past, or you were pregnant when you got SARS-CoV-2, or maybe you were exposed to SARS-CoV-1. I don't know. There, Some people were. Um, and you, because of that, when SARS-CoV-2 comes knocking, we'll get back to the pregnant lady in a second. Let's just stick with the, you've had a coronavirus in the past of some sort. And the corona, SARS-CoV-2 comes knocking, your body actually is like, oh, we have some memory of something like this. And you get these weird non-neutralizing or cross-reactive antibodies. And it not only lets the virus in to proliferate, but it can wreak havoc on your own immune system in some pretty gnarly ways. And so that might be one reason. I've been saying from the beginning, there was studies coming out talking about ADE to the virus itself. And I was like, well, that explains why some people are having a horrific experience. You know, why are some people getting super sick so fast and others aren't? It's not just about metabolism. It's not just about hormones. It's not just about gut. It's not just about sleep. It is about all those things, but you see how there's a lot going on here. So we can't put our finger on, they can't be black and white. We can't be like, oh, it's this is why they got so sick. Who knows? It's a it's a whole conglomerate of things, but there might be this underlying memory of some coronavirus in the past that is causing your body to react in a chaotic way when SARS-CoV-2 comes knocking. Some of the reasons that have been, it's been speculated that some of the reasons that some of these infants are dying is potentially there was a maternally acquired SARS-CoV-2 antibody response because mom got SARS-CoV-2. And then she passed those antibodies to her infant. And then some of these infants with multi-system inflammatory syndrome, you heard about that in the past, and they were making a big deal out of it and scaring the crap out of everybody. This may also be, um, it may have been ADE caused by the maternally acquired antibodies. So that's very interesting. And it has something to do with the mast cells and histamine, but we don't want to go into that. I just want to explain this concept that antibody-dependent enhancement can happen to the virus itself and really cause people to have a horrific experience with the virus, which I thought was very interesting. All right. Um, because it's very it's well-established that antibodies to one strain of a virus may be sub-neutralizing or non-neutralizing for viral infections of different strains. This does explain, between this, my description of what happens with the immune system, all the variables and cofactors and comorbidities, the potential for an autoimmune response happening in real time and the ADE, this really can explain why some people are having a much rougher time with SARS-CoV-2 than others. And then lastly, I'll just say this, there is the spike protein. Spike proteins are on all coronaviruses. Some people have erroneously said the spike protein is a bioweapon. Um, that is an incorrect use of terminology because there's spike proteins on all coronaviruses. And so if this spike protein had been altered in some way in a lab, I do not know. But I will say that the spike protein itself is a toxin. And if you look at some of the, uh, I, shoot, I don't even know where I've seen them all. I've seen 
actual pictures from pathologists showing before and after, and this is after being infected with the virus and with being injected with the vaccine, the spike protein itself just induces inflammation. So whether you get the virus and have to go through that, or whether you get the vaccine and you have to go through that, in both cases, you're going to have to go through dealing with the spike protein. And the spike protein can cause massive inflammation in all the tissues. It can cause inflammation in the brain, the cardiovascular system, the ovaries, the you know kidneys. There's some talk of it causing hepatitis because it's causing inflammation in the liver. And so really think of it this way. Your body has just been exposed to spike proteins that are toxins and they induce a ton of inflammation depending on what system they get into. They might get into all your systems and you're going to deal with that whether you deal with the virus or whether you deal with the vaccine because the vaccine basically makes you for a short period of time, we do not know how long, a spike protein factory. That's the whole point of it. It causes your cells to make spike proteins so that the body can build an antibody to the spike protein. All righty. So, um, I mean, shoot, the some a study just came out in circulation showing what the, that the spike protein itself was causing up to a 25% increased risk of death for two and a half months from cardiovascular from a cardiac event uh, following the vaccination, the second dose of the vaccination for up to two and a half months. And that just came out beginning of November. And so we know the spike protein itself is a toxin. And but again, remember I said viral titers matter. So if your viral titers are high because your immune system isn't awesome at clearing it or recognizing it or doing any of the things early on and the virus gets a hold and it gets a high viral titer in there, not only is your risk of death higher for various reasons, but the spike protein thing is a real issue. If you've been vaccinated and you go get your booster shot, you are now hitting yourself again with another dose of spike proteins. I'm not saying don't do it because you can't avoid, we are not gonna avoid spike proteins either way. There was a study that came out, the study that I think got me pulled off Instagram that I shared out that the spike proteins are in the water and they are a neurotoxin to aquatic life. So these spike proteins are wreaking a lot of havoc in a lot of places and I pro- I'm full of them right now because I just got through COVID. And so I'm my body's processing them and dealing with them. Again, I'm trying to take really good care of myself and keep my inflammation low. So with that, I will end. I hope this explains, I'm sure there's many more mechanisms I haven't gotten into, but I hope this explains why some people get sicker than others. It is a, it's not all a, um, toss of the dice, like it's not just luck or bad luck, because we can mitigate a lot of these variables through good, clean living. But there were people who came out and said, how did you get so sick? And I shouldn't say so sick, because I mean, it was just like, you know, a good womp for a few days. But people were saying, that's that you're so healthy, you shouldn't have gotten sick. Well, maybe not. I have a funny immune system. I have some known autoimmune issues. Um, I've I've got some discrepancies here and there. I have 47 and a half years of past history of having very brittle health <laughs> that's come and gone. And so just because I look a certain way and I live a certain way doesn't mean I'm immune to everything too. And I hope that this makes some people feel better because there's been people contacting me telling me they feel guilty they got so sick, they did everything right, why did this happen? And I'm here to share and I hope this sheds some light. It's just totally impossible to really 
guarantee that you're not going to have some kind of symptomology. I never at any point thought I was going to die. The only time I was concerned about my fiance was when his pulse ox started dropping because he really was having a hard time. And he was just plain worn out at that point, right? He just had been rocking a fever for so many days in a row and his sleep was so completely destroyed because of it that he was just wearing thin. Uh, I, I still didn't think he was going to die. <laughs> so I, I want to leave you with that because we are all different humans. We all have different bodies. We all have different physiologies. We all have different hormonal pictures and different gut health and different diets and different sleep patterns and all kinds of different varieties and variables. And we don't know if we're going to have an autoimmune response. We don't know what the spike protein reaction is going to be. We don't know if we've had some kind of coronavirus in the past that our body's remembering and we're having some kind of ADE response to it. So be kind to one another and I will see you in the next episode. Thanks for listening to The Dr. Tina Show. Please be sure to follow me on Instagram at Dr. Tina, that's D-R-T-Y-N-A, and Dr. Tina 2.0, as well as visit my website at drtina.com. This is a Resonant Media production produced by Drake Peterson and mixed by Chris McCone. The theme song is by John the Guilt. As always, you can email the show at podcast at drtina.com. And if you like this episode, please rate, review, and subscribe on your favorite podcast app. See you next week. This podcast is for general informational purposes only. It does not constitute the practices of medicine, nursing, or other professional healthcare services, including the giving of medical advice. I am a doctor, but I am not your doctor. No doctor-patient relationship is formed. The use of this information and the materials linked to this podcast is at the user's own risk. The content on this podcast is intended not to be a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Users should not disregard or delay in obtaining medical advice from any medical condition they have, and they should seek the assistance of their healthcare professionals for any such conditions. <laughs>